We're currently studying the very last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a tough book. Uh, there's no getting around it. It is a tough book. book. Sometimes it's tough to understand uh, because it uses a lot of imagery and references to Old Testament scriptures. Sometimes it's tough because we'll be very deeply challenged by what it has to say to us about our walk with God and our faithfulness to him or, or lack thereof. Um, sometimes it'll be tough for us to accept because Jesus can be very blunt in his judgment. And it's also tough because it tells us about the persecutions and the tribulations that Christians are going to go through uh, as we go throughout history and especially as we approach the end of the age. And this is going to continue until Jesus returns, cuts off history and makes all things new. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus is dictating to John seven letters to seven different churches in what, in what they then called Asia, today we call it Turkey. And today we're up to the third letter, the letter to the church at Pergamum. And each week as I've introduced these letters, I've said something along the lines of, you know, these letters, uh, as we read these letters, it's going to be like waiting for the mailman to come. Uh, because these letters are not just written to the churches in Turkey back in John's day, they're written to, to churches all over the world or right throughout history. And one or more of these letters, I believe, are written to us here at Bush Disciples. And so each week, as we read these letters, it's going to be like asking ourselves the question, is today's letter a letter from Jesus to us? Is it a letter to Bush Disciples? Or is it a letter to one of the churches who are utilising the video that we're recording this morning? Or is it a letter to a church of somebody who's listening to this on their iPod? So, the letter to the church at Pergamum. I'm going to read it now, and it comes from Revelation chapter 2, Verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. When I read the letter to the church at Pergamum, to me it seems a little bit more obscure than any of the other two letters that we've already read. Now, the, the first two letters, they haven't been very difficult to understand, have they? Uh, I think they're pretty simple. But, and neither is this one, really. This one's actually pretty clear in what it's saying. It's just the way that it says it. 
Um, there's an Old Testament scripture reference that, where we don't get the full story, and so we have to go back into the Old Testament and do a bit of digging. Actually, we have to do a fair bit of digging to see what the story is about. And even then, we don't get the full story. And then there's images of white stones and secret names written on stones and, and, and hidden manna. And all of these things are a little bit out there. Uh, but don't lose heart. The main message is very clear. So, as with the other letters, Jesus begins by giving a description of himself. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, if you can remember back to chapter 1, where John described Jesus, Jesus had a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. Now, that sounds a bit terrifying. Um, it's not the picture that we normally picture of Jesus. Um, what's that about? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Right, so this is describing Jesus as having a two-edged sword, and we know it comes from his mouth. Now, what does that mean? What's it telling us? Jesus' words are the words of God himself. When we hear Jesus speak, we're hearing the word of God. When we're hearing what Jesus has to say to the church in Pergamum, we're hearing the word of God. This is not something we can argue with. And sometimes Jesus' words will cut deep. Sometimes they cut very deep. Nothing is hidden from Jesus' sight. Jesus knows everything about us. Jesus knows everything about you. Jesus knows everything about me. Nothing is hidden from him. And we're, now that can be a little bit daunting, really. Um, the reason why? Well, because it is Jesus to whom we have to give an account. He knows everything about us, and it is to him whom we have to give an account. And with his words, Jesus has power and authority to judge. And what Jesus has to say to this church in Pergamon will cut individuals within that church very deeply. And it's also a challenge to the church itself to deal with issues that have gone unaddressed in that church there's doctrinal issues. Doctrinal issues is about what we believe. It's about our, our religious belief and practice. And there were moral issues as well that had been ignoring. Uh, moral issues like lifestyle choices that are not appropriate for disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to take note because this part, what I'm about to say, is extremely important. And that's explaining why the reason why Jesus' words can be so cutting. Jesus is not saying these things out of spite or vindictiveness. He says these words to the church to let them know how critical it is for them to repent. And if the word of God is cutting you personally today, 
I want you to hear this. The purpose is not to leave you feeling hopeless, worthless, rejected, unloved, judged and condemned. The purpose is to lead you to repentance. And that's what we all need to hear. Um, This is not your final judgment. It's a warning. Repent before the day of judgment comes. Okay, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, We'll get to the warning later. But first of all, Jesus has got some good things to say to this church at Pergamum. So let's set the scene. The city of Pergamum was well known in the ancient world for several things. Firstly, it had an enormous library. It was said to contain over 200,000 parchment scrolls. And apparently our word parchment is actually derived from the name Pergamum. Secondly, it was famous for its many temples to all sorts of gods, including Zeus, Dionysus and Athene. But probably most notably and most consequential for the Christian church in that place of Pergamon was that city's dedication to emperor worship and, or Caesar worship, whichever you like to call it. As early as 29 BC, Pergamum had built a temple dedicated to Rome. And over time, their worship of all things Roman increased and they built more temples so that they could worship Caesar. And it appears that more than any other city in that region, they were devoted to worshipping Caesar. And Jesus said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, if as we discovered last week that Satan is the one who is responsible for the persecution of the church, which he is, and if in this region that persecution was because Christians refused to participate in emperor worship, and if this very city of Pergamon was recognised as being the centre of Roman emperor worship, it's not hard to understand the analogy. You dwell where Satan's throne is. The city of Pergamon was devoted to emperor worship. And anyone who wouldn't join in, and especially anyone who firmly stood apart from it, well, they got more than threats. And at least one of them, Antipas, had already been killed because he refused to bow down to Caesar. And the Bible doesn't tell this, but we can read it from other sources. Legend has it that Antipas was roasted inside a brazen bull. Now, If you don't know what a brazen bull is, it's a brass oven in the shape of a bull. So it's a statue of a brass statue of a bull, hollow, that they would open the door, bundle the person inside of it, close the door, and then heat it with fire. And I understand the trick was to heat it slowly so that it didn't all happen too quick. And you can imagine what terrible death that would have been. By the way, can you catch the significance of this? To bow down to Caesar as God is to worship at the throne of Satan. And that can go for any false god at all. To bow down to any other god is to bow down to the throne of Satan. But Jesus congratulated them as a church because even though they lived in this place that was so satanic in what it believed and so satanic satanic in what it did, They held fast to the name of Jesus Christ. 
They would not be shaken from it. They were proudly like, we are Christians. We are following Jesus. And it must have been tough for them to do that. But they didn't give up on their faith in Jesus. But you'd sort of think, okay, well, that's good. They've got everything going for them. They're standing firm for Jesus. But that's where the congratulations for the church at Pergamum ends. And Jesus went on to say to them, but I've got a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Righto. Let's divide this letter into the clear what we know from the letter itself and then what we can learn by delving into the Old Testament. So, from the letter itself, we discover that there were false teachers putting forth the subtle temptation to assimilate with their society. Now, you can imagine it, can't you? If everybody's eating meat that's sacrificed to other gods, why can't we do it too? I mean, what, where's the harm in that? We're, we're not actually worshipping these gods. We know that they're, they're not, we're just going to worship Jesus, but it's not going to hurt. You know, you're only going to offend them if you don't eat their meat, so it's okay. And, oh, if, every, if just about everybody else is having sex before they're married, well, that's just what a modern society does. That, what's the harm in us doing that too? All right, so the stumbling blocks for them were, A, dabbling in the worship of idols by eating meat that's been sacrificed to them, and B, the practice of sexual immorality. And this is where it gets a little bit unclear. The phrase practice of sexual immorality is one word in the original Greek from and it's, the word is porniusai from the root word pornio from which we get our word you guessed it pornography the Greek word originally meant fornication now, that's a word we don't use very often but the word fornication simply means sex before marriage uh, but it also then got extended to describe all sorts of sexual immorality, including prostitution. And sometimes it was then used as a metaphor for idolatry. So, for example, the people were supposed to be faithful to God, but they prostituted themselves to other gods. So, I guess the question before us here then is, How's the word being used here? Because he's talking about, uh, he's talking about idol worship. But then he throws in this, in this sexual immorality thing. Is he talking about you're worshipping, is, is it just another way of him saying you're worshipping idols, you're prostituting yourselves spiritually? Or were there some in that church who were fornicating or practising some other kind of sexual immorality? Well, I suspect that it's probably both. And as one commentator puts it, feasting on sacrificial meat and licentious conduct were usual accompaniments of the worship of idols, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. All right? So sexual immorality and idolatry very often went together. And, many t and the truth of the matter was that 
many of the heathen temples themselves had these things called cult prostitutes, where you didn't actually pay the minister. You, the, the, the temple paid these prostitutes, and they were there to help the people worship God in ways I can let you imagine. But don't imagine it too long, because it won't be healthy. And, and many times throughout history, the history of the church, Gentile Christians, that is non-Jewish Christians, most of us here, would be told that the only rules they had to really keep was don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols and refrain from sexual immorality. They were the two biggies. Why? Because they were the two big temptations that would easily draw them out of what it's all about, being a disciple of Jesus, and draw them back into the culture of the world. So it seems that the sin of the church in Pergamum was the exact opposite of the sin of the church in Ephesus. Do you remember the sin of the church in Ephesus? Jesus congratulated them because they had absolutely no compromise. There'd be no false teaching in their church. There was no watering down of anything in their church. But then Jesus absolutely ripped them to shreds because even though they had everything theologically ticked off and correct, they didn't love. So that was the sin of Ephesus. But now we're in Pergamon and we've got the exact opposite. We have a church who Jesus is chastising them because they've allowed deceptive teaching into their church and some are being led astray by it. How does that happen? Why are there so many people who claim to be Christians and they may even be quite open about their faith and yet they, the way they live has, has very little or no difference to the way the rest of the world lives? And might see drunkenness, foul language, rude jokes. What, why is it not uncommon for Christians to be sexually active before they're married? And some of them even lived together before they're married. Why are churches beginning to bless and marry same-sex couples? Why do we get such a little subtle shift over time, which becomes an enormous radical shift over a couple of decades? And this is where I want to take us to the Old Testament to learn about the sin of Balaam. We learn about Balaam in the book of Numbers. And I've always had a bit of trouble with this Balaam character uh, because it's really hard to tell with this fellow. Is Balaam a goodie or is he a baddie? It's really hard to tell because, you know, is this bloke a prophet of God or is he relying on demonic powers to discern the future? It starts out, he seems to be a prophet for hire whom Balak, who's a heathen king, sends money to him to get him to come and bless his armies and curse the armies of Israel. So straight away you think, oh, he's a baddie. He, he's, he's one of the evil blokes. But that, that, then Balaam says, well, hang on a minute, I can't come with you straight, straight away. Um, I'm going to have to consult Yahweh first. Um, and Yahweh is God's personal name. And that is the Lord, our God, whom we worship. Now, some of you might be looking along in your Bibles at this point and go, well, hang on, my Bible doesn't say Yahweh. Um, so I, let me just give you a little quick lesson 
in the convention that Bible translators use. Our Bibles actually never write God's personal name, Yahweh. In the original Hebrew text, it's there. But our Bibles don't write it. Instead, they write the Lord. Why? Well, it all goes back to the Hebrews. The Hebrews, when they were reading their scrolls, they would never want to actually say God's personal name because if they said it wrong, then they'd get, they'd get nuked. <laughs> you know? and, and so they'd actually then put some rules around. If anybody says God's personal name at all, which is Yahweh, um, then sentence of death straight away because they'll be taking God's name in vain. We, we couldn't possibly say God's name properly. Right? So they had a convention where when they were reading their scriptures, wherever they saw the word Yahweh, they would say the Lord. But in the Hebrew scriptures, Yahweh is written with a tetragram, Yahweh, um, and the Lord was written Adonai. So whenever they got to Yahweh, they would say Adonai. Now let's bring that into our modern translations, our modern translations, wherever you see the word the Lord in all capital letters, the Hebrew word behind that word is Yahweh. God's personal name, okay? And when I first learned that, it just opened up the Old Testament for me and just makes it so much more personal. Personal. God wants to make himself known to us. Instead of reading, the Lord, that is my name, we're reading Yahweh, that is my name. He's actually making himself known to us. Now, if you don't believe me, when you get home, open up your Bible and have a look in your Old Testament. You'll see in some places it has the Lord written in all capitals. Some places it'll be written in little letters, capital L, little O-R-D. So if it's capital L, little O-R-D, it's the Lord. If it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's Yahweh. And likewise, if you see the word God in all capitals, that is also Yahweh. And if you find it in the front of your Bible, it'll have a few translation notes and it'll explain that to you there. So that's a long way of explaining to you how I know that Balaam consults Yahweh. He's our God that he's asking about and God actually speaks to him. And so it seems that we've got this godly prophet who's in close contact with God. But then as the story starts unfolding, we realise that Balaam is working against God. And, and God actually says to him, your way is perverse before me. Some of you might remember the story of Balaam and his donkey. I haven't got time to read that whole story to you. That's a whole message in itself. But I'd encourage you when you go home to read Numbers 22, 23 and 24, and you'll get a bit of a picture about what I mean, where it, you're constantly asking yourself, is this man a man of God or is he working against God? Because sometimes it seems that he is and sometimes it seems that he's not. But it's only when we get to chapter 25 where an awful incident occurs and something dreadful has happened in Israel. Numbers 25. While Israel lived at Shittim, the people began to whore. And by the way, the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Bible, it's a very similar word to that to prostitute themselves. It's ekporniosai. So the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of Yahweh 
was kindled against Israel. Terrible incident where, where the men of Israel started shacking up with the women of these other nations and they turned their hearts toward these other gods. But then we've got to skip forwards all the way to chapter 31 before we learn that it was actually Balaam's advice that caused this to happen. It was Balaam himself who had given the advice that, that they should, um, that this was the way to get the people of Israel to go, against, to go against God. So it seems like Balaam was God's prophet, but underneath he's working against God. He taught them, get the men of Israel to marry the idolatrous daughters of Moab. Once you get their hearts, then you'll get them to turn from God to Baal. By the way, young people, there's something very important that I want you to learn from this. A Christian should never even consider dating a non-Christian. The purpose of dating is to decide whether a person is a suitable person for you to marry or not. And if that person is not a Christian where well, you've already got your answer, no, they're not a suitable person to marry. So never tempt yourself by starting to date somebody who's not a Christian. The scriptures say, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. They say, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Um, as one preacher I heard once said, if you marry a child of the devil... You're always going to have trouble with your father-in-law. And I found that to be humorous, but very true. Very true. So, anyway, back to the church at Pergamum. Does that picture of Balaam give you some kind of idea of how false teaching subtly makes its way into a church? False teachers are dangerous when they have the appearance of being godly. If, if a false teacher turned up here at this church and started teaching things like, well, Jesus didn't die for your sins, or Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or if he said, right, let's pray to Buddha now, or if he said, right, after the church today, men, pick a different woman, we're all going to take a different partner home um, for this week, you'd probably straight away start thinking, hmm, I think there's something not quite right with this preacher. Anybody not be concerned with that? Oh, good, good. Okay, false teachers are only dangerous when they have the appearance of being godly. A false teacher who is just blatantly obvious, we're all going to pick up on that straight away, and their danger isn't near as bad. The ones who are dangerous are the ones who seem to be reasonable, the ones who seem to be godly. They might come across as being spiritually gifted. They might have a very powerful and convincing way with words. And most of them, most of what they say might be true. And it might seem like they're speaking the very word of God himself, and you may have been personally helped by them very much in what they've taught and what they've shared with you. But the whole time, beneath the surface, they're gently introducing compromise. And that's what happened at Pergamon. Compromise that led people to believe that it was okay for them to dabble on the edges of idol worship, 
compromise that led them to believe that it was okay for them to sleep with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. And this is what Jesus held against them. Idolatry and immorality. But I also suspect that these are just examples of subtle compromise. Once again, the Nicolaitans pop up. The Nicolaitans we learned a couple of weeks ago, they taught that it's okay to be a Christian and sort of accept other gods on the side. And that's actually pretty relevant for us in our society at the moment uh, with the proliferation of the New Age movement and everybody's looking for some kind of spiritual awakening um, that's not necessarily Jesus and they're happy to mix it all up together. So what were they to do about it? Well, this is the wonderful thing with the Lord our God. The Lord our God is always very quick to forgive if only we will repent. And he gives a pretty harsh warning for us to do so. He says, if you don't repent, I will come to you, meaning your church, and war against them, meaning the false teachers and those who have been compromising because of them, with the sword of my mouth. Now that can't be anything, they can't be talking about anything other than the judgment of God. If you don't repent, I will judge you. But judgment will only come to those who don't repent. What about those who do? Well, those who do repent and those who have remained faithful from the start will receive forgiveness and eternal life. Verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... Now, in this context, the one who conquers is the one who repents or the one who stays faithful. So the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is Jesus saying here? Well, what he is saying is very clear. It's all specifically to do with eternity and forgiveness. We get right with God and we are eternally blessed. But what's not so clear is what some of these images mean. What is it about this hidden manna? You remember at the start I told you there's going to be quite often I'm going to say, I don't know. Well, that's one of those times. I don't know what the hidden manna is. But I do know that manna is food from God and it's sustenance from God himself. And in a world where it was hard for these people to find meat that hadn't been sacrificed to an idol, Jesus is saying to them, you might be hungry now, but in glory you're not going to go wanting. What about the white stone? Once again, I don't know. I don't know what the white stone is. But I do know that in Revelation, white is a symbol of purity and holiness. The significance of the stone? I don't know. I could guess. One commentary I read said, here's seven different things it could mean. And I thought, well, that's all very good and nice. But we don't know. It could be like a judgment, white stone or black stone. Is, is this person justified or is he not? 
Are they saved or are they not? It could be like a, a, a token pass to get into the wedding event. We don't know. But we do know that that, name, that that stone, it says it had a new name written on that stone that no one knew except the one who receives it. I want to say something about that. Have you ever noticed the way that Jesus used to change people's names? And God did it with, with some of his people in the Old Testament as well. He changed their names. You see, a name is really important. Biblically, a name goes to the very identity of who a person is. So when Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, Jesus was saying, you're going to be a rock, because that's what Peter means. It means rock. But that was quite laughable at the time, because Peter was anything but a rock. Even at Jesus's, when Jesus, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter denied Jesus three times before the morning. But then everything changed on the day of Pentecost when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's when he became a rock. And all of a sudden, this shy, timid man who, cow, who was cowering behind locked doors came out into the open and preached the word of God to everyone. And Peter became that rock. And this is what we need to know. This is what we all need to know. When we repent... And when Jesus Christ forgives us, we are no longer the people who we once used to be. You may have once been a fornicator. You have, may have once been an idolater. You may be somebody who has a history of compromise, either morally or spiritually. What you need to hear is that when you repent and when God forgives you, you are not that person anymore. You are a new person. You have a new identity. And other people may continue to see you as that old per person and say, ah, he'll never be any good. Or that woman, ah, she's damaged goods. That may be how others see you, but that's not how God sees you. He gives you a new identity a new identity in Christ. And on that day when he returns, you will be standing with him, pure and holy in your white garments, rejoicing that he has held you firm for all eternity. Can you see how this is important, not just for the individuals in Pergamum, but for, the, for everybody in the church to hear this and to know it. When somebody repents, they are forgiven and receive a new identity in Christ. In that church in Pergamum, some of them had remained faithful right through until death. But then others, it's almost as if they'd belittled what, you know, that sacrifice that they'd done just by compromising so easily. How could those who have remained faithful and gone through persecution ever trust the ones who had compromised ever again? Well, they couldn't. Unless they understood that by repentance of those individuals and the forgiveness and mercy that God had extended to them, they are no longer the ones who compromised. They are no longer those people, they have a new identity 
in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes your words cut us very deeply. And we thank you, Lord, that at this point, your words are not to condemn, but to lead us to repentance. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would convict us of our compromise. Lord, that you would reveal false teaching in your church and that we would not tolerate it. Lord, I pray for individuals who have compromised their Christian faith and who wish now to repent. Lord, I ask that you would open the way forwards for them, that they would yield their very lives to you, every part of their lives, to be holy and completely and uncompromisingly yours. And Lord, we have all had need of repentance, every one of us. We have all experienced your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Lord, thank you that we can turn from our sin and that when we do that, you have forgiven us and you give us a new identity. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be quick to recognise the new identity that we have all found in Christ. Lord, that we would recognise that we are all forgiven sinners standing by your mercy alone. And Lord, as by your grace, we seek to be a church who do not compromise on what we believe and how we behave. Lord, please help us to never become like that church in Ephesus who lost their love. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.